Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 16th, 2016, and my guest is James Besson, lecturer in law at the Boston University School of Law and author of Learning by Doing, The Real Connection Between Innovation, Wages, and Wealth. Jim, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. And one of the central ideas of your book is what happens to the average worker as technology and innovation grows in the economy. Do they share in the gains? Uh, a lot of people worry the average worker isn't sharing in the growth of the economy over the last decade, decades. Um, what can history teach us? Well, history lessons are always tricky to apply to the present. What history can do is make sure we're at least asking the right questions. Uh, in fact, uh, the Industrial Revolution saw problems and patterns that are not really or seem very similar to what's happening today. I won't say they're identical. They're not. Uh, they face different challenges than we face. But... I think people often forget or neglect that history or don't know it in the first place. Um, and uh, I think our understanding of what's happening today would be a lot richer if we did under, if we did, if we did know that. Well, I was very surprised and, and intrigued by the historical data that you bring to bear on the question, which is in particular that over long stretches of the Industrial Revolution, uh, pay was stagnant or appears to be stagnant. And that led some thinkers and writers to be very pessimistic about innovation, about capitalism. Uh, but that things changed. And it, you know, in my mind, it's just a long, steady increase in human well-being since about 1750, and that's not true. So, talk about what the data show, how it was uh, misinterpreted, or at least assumed uh, some trends were assumed to be permanent, and what what we can learn from that. Right. Well, people understood very quickly that machines were taking over tasks of workers. And this prompted people to get very concerned, and not, not unsurprisingly, and very similarly to today, that we're not going to have jobs. Uh, and you combine that then with a long period of stagnant wages. So this was true both in the Industrial Revolution in Britain and in the U.S., uh, I, I'm, I use data for the, for the U.S., uh, but we, you know, we can see that the textile mills, which was really the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, both in the U.S. and, and, and in Britain, uh, productivity was going up very rapidly and wages were not. Um, wages didn't go up for textile workers until after the Civil War. So you had a long period, the first... The first uh, textile mills were the 1814, 1817, um, and you had this very long period of tremendous productivity growth uh, in output per worker uh, and, and completely stagnant wages. And so people, Marx included, uh, looked at this divergence and said, uh, you know, capitalism is this new system that uh, is extracting all of the profits to the capitalists. 
And at that time, it seemed like that was right. It seemed like that was what was happening. And people were very, very afraid that there would not be, that there would be massive unemployment, what we call technological unemployment today. Uh, didn't happen. So the stagnation in wages over that period, it's, it's a very long period of time. It's roughly half a century. Yeah. Um, what's your explanation for why that stagnation so, occurred and then so, why things changed? Yeah, yeah. So the I, I think the, the first this, – this is a complicated explanation or a little bit. Uh, the, the first thing to realize is uh, – these were not unskilled workers. Now, that, that it's, a, it's a common misconception. It's, it's, it's very prevalent. We, we still tend to think today of factory workers as being unskilled, especially at the Industrial Revolution. And it's certainly true that they did not have many skills when they walked in the door of the mills. Uh, you, you, I, I look in detail, for instance, at, at weavers, and these weavers were typically teenage girls. Um, some of them had woven on hand looms at home, uh, but they had never been in an industrial type environment uh, with sophisticated machinery, anything like the, what was in the mills. Uh, and, and they had no prior experience for the most part when they walked in the, in the mills. The mills hired people who had never worked in the mills before and had no industry experience. Over the course of a year or so, they would learn a tremendous amount and their productivity would go up fivefold or sixfold. Uh, many of the the new entrants didn't succeed. They couldn't survive in that environment. They they couldn't manage to learn, or they found it too distasteful. Um, but the ones who did had acquired very valuable skills, and we can actually measure those skills. And we and we know that they that, that we know that those skills were important and critical to actually the mill achieving productivity. Mills that failed to get the workers up to speed failed economically. The reason is, I I want to interrupt for a sec, which is one of the challenges, I think, of thinking about these issues today, especially, and well, as well as over history, is that we think about the phrase, machines make workers more productive, which is undoubtedly true, and the transformation in the industry you're talking about and weaving, we'll probably get into in some detail, it's, it's rather extraordinary how much more workers could do uh, than with the machines and without, with the automation and without. Uh, and yet, in many ways, it's the machines that are productive. And so the, the fundamental question is, what are the workers bringing? One of the fundamental questions is, what are the workers bringing to the experience that works with the machine as well as that makes them valuable in and of themselves relative to their alternative employment? And I think that's something people often forget. Yeah, and, and so I, I think the general answer to that question is technology is complex, it's, and it's never 100% automated. When you have something that's even 98% automated, uh, there are still lots of things for workers to do, and it turns out that their proficiency at doing those, re- those few remaining tasks uh, is critical for the throughput of the machine. So what, what I mean, l- literally with the... With the, the textile machines, if something went wrong, the machine would stop, uh, and it would be down. And it, it was the, the ability of a weaver to recognize a problem was developing, if possible, fix it before the machine stopped. Uh, if not, fix it 
uh, quickly so the machine was down for a short period of time and, and fix it reliably so that it wouldn't come go down again. Um, so the, the productivity of the machines was just deeply intertwined with these very specific technological skills um, that, that the workers had to learn on the job. Uh, and, and, and this was a particular challenge then, and, I, and I'll argue it's a very similar challenge to today. Um, the, 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 uh, the, from a social point of view, what was difficult about these skills was that they had to be learned on the job, at least at first. Uh, they were skills that couldn't be taught in a classroom, and many of them were very unstandardized. They were, you would go to one mill, it would do things one way, and would have one set of equipment. The, 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 very often the, the looms were custom built for, for the mills. It, it, it was very different from what was at other mills, so that skills learned at one mill weren't necessarily portable to another. You didn't have a, uh, a labor market developing where workers could, who were trained at one mill could, could work at another mill proficiently. Uh, what happened after the Civil War was that that standardization started taking place, that uh, the mills coordinated their, their machinery, they coordinated the way they uh, hired a workforce and, and used the machinery. Um, there were training schools developed for mill managers, so there, there was much more uniformity and what you see happening is that a, a, a robust labor market developed, that in the 1830s, uh, very few of the new hires had any prior experience. By the 1880s, almost all of the new hires had previous experience. What that labor market did was it meant that mills would bid up the wages. You, you were talking a competitive market, workers with, uh, with skills that can be applied in the, across mills. Um, and so the, uh, the, the labor market meant that if, if I were, was not earning enough as a weaver at one mill, somebody else is going to pay me more. And so that was the essential thing to start wages uh, on their upward trajectory. It's hard to understand why it would take so long. Um, now, one argument, I'm a, I was once a labor economist. I still play one on TV, but, um, you know, what what sets your wages is, is your um, – your next best alternative combined with your productivity. And if it's if there are a lot of people who can work a, a loom, a power loom, then – and it doesn't take very long to learn how to do that. You're not going to get paid a lot of money. No matter how more productive the power loom is with a person is than, a, than an artist or a craftsperson loom weaving fabric by hand – so what changed – that's my perspective. I think it's yours as well in the book. What changed in that story? You know, Normally you'd say, well, the early days, it was really hard. Uh, it was really easy to do, but it got more sophisticated. I don't think that's your story though, right? No. So to explain what, what – in a sort of standard labor economics way, why a worker in 1870 got paid a lot whereas the worker in 1845 didn't. So the, the work in 1870 was, was basically paid what they were worth uh, because it, if they didn't get it, they, somebody, somebody else would pay them. Somebody else would hire them. In 1830, uh, you just didn't have the prospect. If you left your mill, you were not going to get a job in another mill. 
in 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 all likelihood. Uh, we found something. I found something that uh, only 18 percent of new hires had previous experience. Uh, that's that's a, a rather low figure. So there there's no guarantee that I'm going to be able to take my work elsewhere. Now, why why wasn't why couldn't I find those other alternative opportunities? Well, because basically, if I went to another mill, things were so different between from one mill to the next um, that the the uh, the new employer had no guarantee that my experience was was relevant. Uh, they would more or less have to treat me as a new hire, uh, and and we actually see some of this that even people who had some some experience. Um, you know, you know, are, are not are not paid well at first, and their productivity goes up over time, and 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 then they they make the earnings. Uh, I understand most workers in, the, in these mills were paid at piece rate, so uh, their earning earnings were very closely tied to their productivity. So this is the technical term for this is firm specific human capital. So I have some knowledge right. that I've learned on the job, but doesn't apply elsewhere. So it's not valuable to those employers. I'm I'm not much different. You're saying from a a new hire. So what changed in the industry then that made it uh, – that made me more productive outside the mill I started in? So it was partly things became more competitive in the industry. And so employers the, – the, the mills started forming trade associations so that they exchanged all sorts of knowledge about the technology and about work practices. So you, you see the Cotton Textile Manufacturers Association forming in, I believe, 1865 – um, you see the growth of a residential labor force. So, uh, again, understand, the, the, uh, the, in the early years, they were hiring from all over New England. Uh, there weren't, where they situated the mills, which had to be, you know, these mills were driven by water power, so they, they had to be at locations that were, had good water power, which weren't typically in urban centers. Uh, there weren't many workers around. The, Lowell, Massachusetts, was originally just a farming village. Um, so they, they hired uh, girls off of farms from all over New England to come live in town. They were, they were put up in boarding houses. Uh, and only very slowly did a residential labor force develop. Um, so, so when somebody left the mills, they, they went back to northern Vermont or whatever, um, weren't uh, weren't around to be to be rehired by anybody else. Uh, so so part of this development was the development of of an urban labor force, and, and that's that's why it took especially long, I think, uh, in, in the 19th century. And of course, that's not a problem we we experience so much today. Well, it sounds like China, actually. <laughs> right. right. Well, well, the, the, Young the, women the leaving the countryside, moving to cities, boarding in Living places. in dormitories, yeah. exactly. Not very, not no, very it, pleasant it, life at first, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and you see the same pattern with Japan's industrialization, and again, beginning with the textile industries. It's, it's, it's striking how similar this pattern has been repeated. In Japan, they actually uh, studied the Lowell pattern, <laughs> And, and attempted to follow it. But in, in, in China, I don't think so much. But uh, it's nevertheless, you, you're facing some of the same problems, the, uh, the same issues, and you see the, some of the same sort of developments. So let's move to the present. And one of the areas I think people are worried about is manufacturing. And listeners to this program, I think, are pretty uh, knowledgeable in the sense that they know that 
manufacturing is an incredibly successful sector of the U.S. economy in terms of output and a very declining sector in terms of employment, as you point out as well. It's, it's a proportion of employment. It's fallen steadily since the 1940s, mid-40s, at the end of World War II. Uh, that speed of decrease has accelerated a little bit uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, perhaps, due to perhaps China, perhaps the recession of uh, 2008. But a lot of people are worried that and the main thing driving that, of course, is productivity. It's that machines are being made that um, allow output per worker to be sufficiently high, that the demand for workers is relatively low. And uh, you point out two, I think, very interesting things. The first is that that doesn't always decrease. The fact that machines make workers more productive doesn't always, or eliminates them even, doesn't always decrease employment in an industry. So let's start with that and, and talk about tellers and ATMs as a sort of, to me, a very powerful example of that. Right. Well, I'll, so let, actually, let me go back to the 19th century first because you're talking manufacturing. So what happened with textiles? During the 19th century, uh, if you look at the, the tasks of weavers, 98% of the work was automated. Yet the number of weavers continued to grow. Uh, the reason was the uh, greater degree of automation meant that the price of cloth, cotton cloth, went down. And people started using more cloth. The demand was elastic. Uh, we, we typically, when we think about this machinery question, we typically forget about the, the, the effect on, on demand. Um, we, you know, at the beginning of the 19th century, people had very few clothes. Clothing was dear. It was, it was a very... It's hard, to, it's hard for people to understand that. You had a couple sets maybe, and you washed them as much as you could bear doing because that wasn't funny. Yeah, I, I, right. I, you typically had one pair of clothes. I think that, that, that was probably, probably typical. Most of the clothing was made at home. Uh, it was a very, very tedious process. It, I mean, just, just making the yarn took hours and hours. Uh, so you had this tremendous drop in the cost, cost of cloth, and people found more and more things to do with it. They, they got more clothes. We had the development of a fashion industry. We had a cotton cloth used for draperies, all carpets, rugs. You, you saw all sorts of... Uh, applications of textiles and people found more and more uses and so the, at each time the the price dropped the demand would would kick in and it would increase more than the labor saving to not enough to offset the labor saving effect of the new technology now eventually we get to the 1920s 1930s that changes and we see that all of a sudden demand doesn't increase so much anymore you know, the demand for, for textiles gets saturated. And we see then of, uh, this beginning of a long but very slow decline in relative employment. And then ultimately, I think here around the 1970s, 1980s, decline in absolute employment uh, in textiles, driven almost all by technology at that point. Of course, the same it, thing is happening in agriculture. Agricultural productivity is going through the roof. Uh, right. And after a while, we just don't need as many farmers, and it just continues to fall and fall and fall, which is fabulous unless you have a lifetime dream of being a farmer with your children's children's children, in which case you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> but for the rest of us who like to eat, it's maybe even a – it's too good. 
It's a, it's a different – we had an obesity problem instead of a poverty problem for, for much of America. So, right. uh, to talk, But I found the tellers and ATM example fascinating because right, I think right. a lot of people yeah, yeah. assume so the, that ATMs have destroyed the number of tellers in America. Right, and it's, it's the same logic at work, that there's a demand effect. So what, you know, what happened when tellers came in? Basically, starting in the mid-'90s, teller ATM machines came in in big numbers. We, we have now something like 400 – thousand some installed in the U.S. And everybody assumed, including some of the bank managers at first, that this was going to eliminate the teller job. Um, and it didn't. Uh, in fact, since 2000, not only have teller jobs increased, but they've been growing a bit faster than the labor force as a whole. Now that, that may eventually change, but the, you know, the impact of the ATM machine was not to destroy teller jobs. It was actually to increase it. What happened? Well, the average bank branch used to require, in an urban area, it took, uh, required uh, about 21 tellers. Uh, that was cut because of the ATM machine to about 13 tellers. But that meant it was cheaper to operate a branch. Well, banks wanted, banks in part because of deregulation, uh, but just for basic marketing reasons, uh, wanted to increase the, the number of branch offices. And when it became cheaper to do so, demand for branch offices increased. And as a result, demand for bank tellers increased and increased, it increased enough to offset the, the labor-saving losses uh, of jobs that would have otherwise occurred. So again, it was one of these more dynamic things where uh, the labor-saving technology actually created more jobs. Um, this is in fact a, a much more general problem. It's not a, a, a much more general pattern, I mean. Uh, we see uh, a, a whole number of occupations where you might think that uh, technology is going to destroy jobs because it's taking over tasks, and the reverse happens. So if you look, for instance, uh, when they put in scanning uh, technology into uh, uh, cash registers, uh, it, the number of cashiers actually increased. When legal offices started using, in the beginning in the late 90s, started using electronic discovery software for doing discovery of documents and lawsuits, uh, the number of paralegals increased rather than decreased. The other part of it that I found so Fascinating. I think that also just typically gets forgotten is that often, not always, but often in these industries, the what the people actually do isn't the same anymore. It's not just that there are fewer or more tellers. It's that the tellers that are still there now are doing something a little bit more that's just different. And I think that's a really important part of this of this transformation. I th that's that's exactly right. And so what, what's happened is that. Cash handling has obviously become less important for tellers, uh, but their ability to market and to their interpersonal skills in terms of dealing with bank clients has become more important. So the transition, what, what, this, what the ATM machine did was effectively change the job of the bank teller uh, into one where they're more of a marketing person. They're part of the, what banks call the customer relationship team. Um, but it's, it's, it's a different sort of skill. Uh, maybe it's a higher skill. Uh, there's some evidence that their wages have gone up. Um, they're hiring more college graduates as bank tellers. 
Um, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a whole variety of ways, we're seeing changes of this sort where the nature of occupations is getting upskilled in some fashion, often, often very, very specific skills related to the particular technology, the particular job. Uh, but th- this is happening across the board. And that, that's part of the, the, uh, the challenge that uh, technology is, is posing for us. How, how do we develop all of these new skills? much as that was the challenge in the, with the weavers in the 19th century. So one of the things people worry about, um, we've talked about a lot on the program, is this fear that artificial intelligence or smart machines won't just make it cheaper to expand output or and change the numbers in complicated ways through demand response, but to just eliminate them totally. So we'll go to online banking where there'll be no people. We'll go to... Uh, a smart factory that just the only um, thing the person does is uh, make sure that the dog that's in front of the place doesn't get out of control. I forget the joke. I'm not. I'm not doing it correctly. But um, you know, it's um, that. That's the concern. In which, and just to take one dramatic example, a world of say driverless cars and driverless trucks will eliminate. Thousands of jobs currently held by cab drivers, Uber drivers, truck drivers, and it's not like there'll still be a few left to make sure you know that certain cars are, are, are driven well or that they'll to oversee the steering wheel process within the car. They'll just be more chatty and friendly or something. They just won't have a job, and their skills, those specific skills, will now be worthless that they've accumulated driving a truck. And so their next best alternative is going to be a lot worse paying. Uh, does that concern you? Uh, I think it does. Uh, we're, the change we're facing now is different in, in, a, in a couple dramatic ways. So one of them is that we, we may be seeing technologies that are capable of replacing the entire set of tasks of an occupation. Uh, I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think art- experts in artificial intelligence will tell you it's going to be quite a while we're, until we're there yet, except for maybe some very specific occupations. The, the other sort of, of reason things are very different now is that uh, computer technology, information technology is affecting far more workers. It's affecting a much larger share of the workforce than anything else we've seen before in terms of major technological changes. So we can think of mechanization uh, in the 19th century or electrification during the early 20th century as, as big technological changes, but these only affected a relatively small part of the workforce. With computers, we're talking about the majority of workers already. I guess one of the... Um, so there is concern that we will see complete replacement of workers in some areas. There are a small number of lights out factories, uh, but that's not a, a very significant aspect uh, today. Um, I, I think, however, that the, the main thing that's happening and the, the main turbulence to jobs is coming when uh, computer technology is being used by some workers to replace other workers. So we can definitely point to occupations that have been diminished. Uh, typesetters, for instance, uh, have the numbers of typesetters have, has dropped by 80% or something uh, since 1980 with the advent of computerized publishing. 
On the other hand, it's, that same technology is associated with an increase in the number of graphic designers, that, a much larger increase uh, in, in the number of graphic designers. So work has shifted from one occupation to another, and that's, that's the typical thing we're seeing today, and I think it's the typical thing we're going to be seeing over the horizon of the next 10 or 15 years. It's not so much the specter of machines completely replacing workers. It's much more about jobs changing either internally, as with the bank tellers, where the, the, the nature of the job changes, or work shifting from one occupation to another, uh, and, and all of this requiring new skills. The, the, the specter of wholesale job replacement and major impacts on unemployment, if it occurs, is, it seems to me to be uh, multiple decades out. But the graphic design is a nice example because if you're a typesetter, you're usually – you're probably not so uh, – let's say it differently. Being good at typesetting doesn't help you with graphic design. As you point out, it's just a totally different set of skills. You can go acquire those skills perhaps. It would depend on the person, their age, and their creativity and their brain and all that. But um, I think that's one of the worries that the transition time as people – leave an industry and join new industries is maybe going to be a lot more difficult. I think one of the things we had David Otter on the program talking about trade with China and, you know, if you lose your manufacturing job or your construction job, say, say the construction sector was overheated due to very variety of factors, it's not obvious what your next best alternative is once you confront the fact that that job you lost may not be coming back. It's a human tendency to wait, hope it'll come back. And if it doesn't, you, you eventually have to confront the fact that you need a different set of skills or you're not going to be paid very much. I think one of the challenges is your books at Learning by Doing, some of those skills are – the mechanisms by which a person can acquire those out of the blue is is not so easy in, in, in when they're in the middle of their lives. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think this is the, the big challenge, and it's it's a big challenge – for two reasons. One is this thing I just mentioned that we're talking about technology now affecting more jobs than ever. And so the, I think the scale of the transitions that, that people are going to have to go through is much larger than we've seen before, as, at least it's resulting from technology. The other is this problem that these skills are often very difficult to acquire for a number of reasons. So one is that until things are standardized and, and, and well understood, it's, it, they can't be taught in school, or it's difficult to, to be taught in school. Uh, be, as long as they are continue to change very rapidly, it's difficult to be taught in school, and it's difficult to, to teach yourself. So we're seeing in, in, in numbers of areas uh, uh, great challenges in, in acquiring these skills. It's not something that we can expect our schools to do very easily, and we don't have much in the way of other institutions uh, to to help people with that. Uh, the graphic designers is, a, is an example where uh, the skills are continually changing, and it it uh, it poses a big challenge. So, what you know, initially you had desktop publishing coming in in the, in the 1980s, uh, and so designers who had been until then primarily trained as print designers, 
uh, now had to learn a new technology. And then the Internet came along, and so they had to learn web design. And then smartphones came along, and they had to learn mobile design. And throughout this process, standards and technologies uh, keep changing. So a few years ago, a flash was a, a requirement, more or less, uh, for a lot of jobs. Today, Flash is seen as obsolete, and people are learning HTML5. Um, if you're not able to teach yourself the latest technology, such as Flash or HTML5, uh, on, on, you know, either on your own or by taking an online course or whatever, uh, it's, it's very difficult to you, to... you can't get those, the, the, the very best jobs. And so what, what you're seeing is... Um, uh, a divergence in pay between the the average graphic designer who still largely has print design skills and the, the top designers who have these other much more sophisticated skills and is able to keep up with the pace of change. So you, you project that sort of challenge across many, many occupations, which is what I think we're seeing. And we, we've got a we've got a social problem, a, a difficult problem. You know, what strikes me about graphic design is an interesting example is that it gets standardized, but then the standard changes. Um, yep. So at first, as you say, you have to know Flash or you have to know – I'm thinking of, of just the artistic part of it. You have to know, say, Adobe Illustrator. You have to know Photoshop. Uh, and so often the software gets more and more complicated. They add more and more bells and whistles. It gets harder and harder to be a master of it. Then all of a sudden, that software is out. People don't use that anymore. They don't use, they got a, there's a new program or a new – package that's designed to make your life easier but you don't know it <laughs> you haven't learned that piece of software so you've got to now uh in a sense retool and it, it's kind of it's a it's almost a cliche but clearly the best skill to have is not adobe illustrator or photoshop or lightroom or whatever is the design tool you're using it's to know how to learn to use a piece of software and that's something right. you can't teach um except through perhaps teaching lots of different kinds and help people see how they're connected. And I suppose it's easier to learn a new software package once you've learned a few. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's this, what people call lifelong learning. Uh, the, you know, we're, and we're seeing a, a, a lot of people putting effort in, into different ways to do this. So, you know, the rise of these online courses, uh, we're seeing boot camps, we're seeing, uh, Traditional schools trying to uh, yeah. ad adapt their curricula. Uh, it's hard to know what works and what doesn't. Um, it, it's hard, you know, it, me as, as, as a, a person needing new skills, it's often hard to know what, uh, where to go. And I, I think that's true at every level of, of education. You know, I, I encourage my children to stay in touch with new things that are being developed and try to get them to think about going into them if they if they're interested in them uh, they're in the middle of their teens or slightly to pass their teens so it's a very exciting time but you're not quite sure what to <laughs> what to work on or what to be to invest in but what seems to be true for my kids which is a blessing is that if there's a lot of things they could learn on their own if if they want to uh, they can get on Coursera, they can get on the web and find – they can almost get themselves a college major without the piece of paper, but they can have the skill set. And obviously, there's a question of being able to prove that knowledge. Just put that to the side. And yet at the same time, there are many, many 
kids who are not prepared to do that level of self-learning. And I just want to come back to this point. It would seem to me that if you could teach people how to teach themselves, you'd really give them the greatest gift. It's almost uh, uh, the modern variation on uh, give a person a fish and they, they're fed for a day and teach them how to fish. They're fed for a lifetime. If you can teach somebody how to learn, you've really given them the, the greatest gift. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And uh, you know, one of the problems is that I don't think we know how to do that right. <laughs> on a large scale. Yep. Um, well, let's let's uh, let's shift gears and talk about this training issue uh, a little more um, uh, explicitly. Uh, there's a big along the lines I'm talking about. I think it's it's a different it's a parallel track. It, they, people think it's the same track, but it's not. I think they, I'm not sure they cross. But you know, people say we just well, we just need more college graduates, and you're very critical of that claim. Uh, why? So college graduates might you know college diplomas might very well be a good thing for most people, but it might not be what they need right now. Um, the this kind of skill, you know, talk about the graphic designers, and, and, and uh, you have a lot of graphic designers who have college diplomas. Um, you have a lot who don't. Uh, the college courses in graphic design are, I have to say, most of them at this point are not able to teach uh, the, the latest graphic design skills. And, I, and I'm not sure that they teach uh, maybe the best ones do, but I'm not sure they they teach you how to how to learn. Um, at, at least it, it it appears that a, a lot of uh, graphic designers who do have college diplomas aren't necessarily faring so well. Um, so it's it's a story that a lot of these skills have to be learned in part through experience with new technology. Uh, some of this stuff has to be learned on the job or at least in conjunction with on-the-job experience and, a, you know, a classroom. So, you know, one, one of the things that's encouraging is you're seeing a lot of community colleges uh, developing work-study programs with local employers where people are able to learn both in the classroom and on the job. And I think, I think that's an important aspect of, of, of solving this problem. Um, we're seeing some other things developing that I think are, are helpful. So when, because uh, actual experience is so important uh, with many of the new technologies, uh, we're starting to see more trade associations developing certifications uh, so that somebody gets certified as having a set of skills, even if they've learned it on the job but not in the classroom. Um, and this becomes an important signal for employers that this person is somebody who they can hire who, who will be able to get the job done and, and that helps build the labor market and, and overcome these problems of firm-specific human capital that we talked about earlier, uh, which was a problem for the weavers and is a problem for many people today as well. But the other part of this that you talk about so well in the book is the role of uh, licensing. And once you have certification, there's a temptation to say a person – uh, to work in this field needs the certificate to get the license that makes them qualified for the job, supposedly. Talk about uh, the growth in licensing, why that's worrisome rather than um, encouraging. Yeah, so so it seems like certification and licensing are more or less the same thing. Um, and, and 
they're not. <laughs> There's really a, a very important difference between them. So to the extent that a, a certification presents an employer with some, some information uh, about your characteristics, that, that's a good thing. To the extent that you can't get a job uh, without a, a license, that's not such a good thing because it, it, it prevents you from getting the experience that you need in the first place. Um, what we've seen is a tremendous growth in licensing from about 5% of all workers in the 1950s to close to 30% today require some sort of licensing uh, in order to get their jobs. Now, licensing may be very important where there are critical issues of, you know, health or safety. Um, but what seems to happen re repeatedly, and, and there's very good evidence about this, is that uh, licensing puts professionals within the occupation in a position to restrict entry into the occupation, raise prices, uh, reduce service quality, um, and it's it may help the people in the occupation, but it it limits entry uh, of, of new workers. It limits the uh, adoption of new technologies, um, and and uh, it, it certainly hurts consumers. Um, so we've seen we've seen a huge growth in in, in licensing, and uh, it, to my mind, and I think to the mind of many other people, uh, excessive growth where. Uh, there needs to be some much uh, better economic rationale for some of these licensing restrictions. Well, as you point out, the political rationale is very clear. It protects the existing workers um, and gives them a little more security and lets them get paid more. But it's bad for the rest of us, including the people who would like to be in that industry. Um, what are the chances that that political rationale is going to change anytime soon? <laughs> other, than, other than people like you and me and, and others, which, which I've seen lately, are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is crazy. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to change very soon. It's, 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 it's rather uh, um, discouraging how much act, you know, political activity has been oriented around these things. A lot of this occurs at the state level, so we're talking, you know, it's, it may not even make it into the into the newspapers, um, uh, you know, people are generally unaware of what happened, of what's happening. Uh, so it, it, these are things that tend to affect, uh, you know, relatively small communities uh, in in the legislature, uh, but the, their impact on the broader society is, is much much greater. And I, I can't say I'm, I, I see any any short term change in that pattern. Yeah, a small glimmer of light would be the Institute for Justice, which if you don't know about it out there, folks, yeah. check it out. They they try to fight um, unnecessary licensing uh, through the court system as a way of um, promoting economic freedom. And uh, I'm a big fan of a lot of what they do. They're, uh, they're, they're fighting this battle right now and city by city, state by state. Um, so uh, let's talk about an example and I do nothing about, uh, it's an interesting claim, which is the role of government procurement in encouraging innovation and technology. Um, the last third or so of your book is about government policy, and a lot of people want government to champion certain kinds of innovations. As you point out, it's not a, that's a very mixed bag, hasn't been so successful. 
But you point out a role for procurement, uh, the government purchases of stuff that I'd never heard or seen before. And it starts very long ago. So start with that example of uh, uh, of rifles and firearms, which I'd never heard, which is very interesting. Yeah, so so um, I think it was, it was even before the... Um, well, shortly after the, the, the Revolutionary War, uh, Thomas Jefferson, among others, became aware that uh, they needed a, a, a new way to build firearms uh, that could be standardized uh, so that replacement, the, 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 each of the parts could be cannibalized from one rifle and put into another one so that they could be repaired on the field. So this was the this was the ideal the the manufacturing ideal. Government played a key role in fostering this technology. Now it it did it for these very specific reasons of making firearms uh, that the, the the this new country could rely on, especially as it didn't have a, a large number of gunsmiths. Um, so they developed these techniques and. What happened was they developed a large, it was done in, in a very open way so that there were two armories, uh, Harvest Ferry and, and Springfield, uh, that were centered technology development. Uh, they shared the information widely. They hired numbers of private firms to produce the guns, um, and these firms would share their knowledge and their latest developments with other people in the process. And as a result, what grew up was a whole community of uh, people who were skilled in this new approach to machining. Well, it turned out that uh, that community was able to then take those skills and apply them to a whole range of uh, other mechanical technologies, and this really led to the the uh, uh, emergence of the of the U.S. as the leading nation in terms of mechanical technologies. It led to the development of the assembly line, um, but much more generally than that, it, it led to uh, this this real supremacy in terms of having workers who had acquired these very unique skills uh, to to use uh, technology with uh, replaceable parts, which became known as the American system of manufacturers. And in, by providing uh, the procurement program under the right sort of rules where knowledge was widely shared, the government had helped spur this entire process. So you, 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 hear, some, you hear people talking, and I think correctly, about government playing a key role in modern technology such as the semiconductor or the computer, uh, the internet. Uh, and it, it, I, it, in many of these cases, it was government procurement playing a very similar role to what was played with, it, to the role it played in the 19th century. Uh, and much of it related to either NASA or defense procurement. But it was done, uh, the, the, the reason these, these, these uh, efforts ended up in having a much wider and more important civilian application was that they were done in ways where the, the key knowledge was widely shared, 
skills were developed among a broad base of people, and this provided the the springboard um, to to greater civilian application and, and a, a key part in recent productivity growth, recent technological growth. Uh, unfortunately, it's not always the case that government recruitment is is done with su- in such a uh, beneficial way. Well, some of that's luck, right? It's just that it wasn't intended. The government, when it made those firearms uh, demands and, and purchases, wasn't thinking, oh, this will lead to all this great stuff in manufacturing. Exactly. And I think a lot of the Internet is the same way. You know, People say the government created the Internet. Well, they created some infrastructure that allowed other people to create the Internet. So you know, obviously right. there's some public role that is relevant, And uh, but – it's not necessarily their best thing, to, the government's best thing to start from some idea and try to take it to fruition. But there are these unintended positive consequences sometimes. But I want to bring it back to standards because I think I – don't, I don't think we got it, the issue that I, that I think is really at the heart of yeah. the question we started with, which is when do workers share in the gains and when do they not share so much, which is this partly a role of standardization. So standards can be – can emerge from private activity through either associations of uh, manufacturers and or industries. Uh, sometimes they can be imposed from the top down. The government can decree a standard of, of some t- kind, sometimes correctly, sometimes not so correctly, and we go down the wrong path. Obviously, we can make mistakes in all kinds of settings. But I want you to try to bring back why standardization is important for worker uh, productivity and compensation and their ability to learn on the job because I think we didn't really give that enough um, attention in our first part of the conversation. So wh- why is that relevant in terms of allowing more learning by doing more specific human capital that allows workers to be compensated and be more productive? Right. So this is, this is the this, this was something with with the, the example of the rifle, with the internet, with with all of these things. Is that is that key a key aspect was open standards that were widely shared. Um, so why why was this important? And, and and people who who write about standards typically write from strictly from the point of view of the uh, importance of standards in allowing. Intercooperation, interoperation of different parts. Um, the my my argument is that standards play a perhaps more important role, or at least as important role, in terms of their ability to make uh, skills portable, to allow uh, and and having portable skills allows robust labor markets to develop. So, what happened when we had? Standards for making machinery with uh, interchangeable parts was that there were a whole set of skills and not only standard tools, but standards of measurement uh, that a a worker could learn. And if they had learned these standards, their skills were then widely applicable to other employers. And so that meant that they had a a wider labor market to uh, appeal to and when they were looking for work. So I didn't really appreciate this uh, until I uh, until I read your book, and I think I appreciate even more from this conversation, which is thinking back to the graphic design idea. So, you know, if you're if you're in a a, um, a company that wants to have a say a corporate newsletter or or, an, or some kind of ad uh, that you want to produce for some kind of publication, 
and you've got a brilliant genius in your IT department, and she figures out a way to help the art people draw that ad or create that newsletter. And then that firm dies or you need to move or you get fired or whatever it is, and you go one to a new company, and they have their own genius who's created a totally different system. It's a fabulous system for creating newsletters or drawing for an ad, but you've never used it before. So you got to start from scratch. And a software package, one of the things that's, you know, we tend to think about it as, well, it's great because then you can do this stuff easily without being a great artist. But the other thing it does, which I hadn't thought about until I read your book or had the conversation, is that what it means is that somebody can teach you how to use that package somewhere. You can take a course in it. You can take a you can go to night school. You can learn it online. You can buy the package yourself and practice it. And once you've learned it, if most firms are using um, that package, you're very valuable to all of them. And so your wages are going to be a lot higher than they would be unless you're that rare person who can develop the package in-house for that customized one-time application. And so I thought the part I really enjoyed and hadn't appreciated was that from your book is this idea that the ability to acquire a skill once standardization sets in gets a lot easier. You can teach it in a class. Uh, you can write a book about how to learn it. Without that, you got nothing. And so that allows the average worker to invest in a skill that has an application beyond the firm that they work in. And that's huge. Yeah, and very nicely put. I've been, I've been struggling to say, say it as, as nicely. And, and, and there's something else, though, too. So you, we were just talking about, you know, how do these governmental technologies that, you know, the government plays a role in, in, the, in, the, in the early stages and it, and it, and it fosters, it, it, it flowers from there. And... When you have something where you can take that skill and use it and, and multiply it across employers, that's how new technologies take hold. That's how they get widely adopted uh, and then develop uh, the, the productivity gains that, uh, that, that we all want so much from technology. So technology struggles to get adopted when it's very firm specific and when it's not standardized and it's inevitable that in the early stages because it's changing rapidly and it's new and there are multiple variants uh things are different from firm to firm and things don't get widely adopted and so we have new technology but we don't have necessarily the productivity growth we would hope from that new technology it's when things become standardized that the technology itself becomes more productive because we have the skills the skilled people who can take it and and spread it widely. The other thing I just want to make sure we mention is um, the synergy between people uh, across firms uh, that can occur in geographic areas um, and in particular famously in the United States, Silicon Valley. And you contrast Silicon Valley with Route 128, which is a fantastic example I'd never heard before. I don't want to miss that conversation point. I, it's just fantastic. At least the claim. I don't know if it's true, but uh, talk about the, the non-compete role uh, in the difference in the two in the two places, because it's an issue that is in the news lately, the, this, the role of non-competes and non-compete being the contractual thing that when you're hired somewhere that 
uh, if you if you change jobs or quit, you can't necessarily uh, work wherever you want, which is a bizarre thing that you would agree to such a thing. But a lot of firms have non-compete agreements. So talk about that and how it makes a difference. Yeah, so so the, non-com- the use of non-compete agreements, particularly for technical employees, has been uh, growing over the last couple decades as well as, you know, it's not just licensing. Non-competes is an issue. Non-competes is starting to be an issue in lower wage jobs as well. Uh, but I, I think it's particularly important for uh, technical employees. Um, so from the point of view of the employer, there's, there's a, a, a rationale for a non-compete, which is if I'm going to, as an employer, train you on some specific skill, I want you to stay employed at, at my firm rather than take that skill to somebody else. Um, so having a non-compete might make uh, the employer's incentive to provide training uh, greater. Now, as it turns out, employers don't in the U.S. provide much training to employees. But there, there's a, a flip side to that coin, which is if I, as an employee, have a non-compete agreement, I have less incentive to invest my own time in learning a new skill. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's one of the, the, the drawbacks of non-competes. There, there are two others, I think. One is that um, in a place like Silicon Valley, you see a lot of knowledge being transferred from one firm to another as employees go from one firm to another. Uh, And this is often critical with newly emerging technologies. So nobody typically has a monopoly on all of the good ideas. So there's, there's firm A and there's firm B, and firm A has figured some things out, and firm B has figured some things out. And if through employee exchange, which is what happens in, in typically in Silicon Valley, uh, it, both firms can benefit from what they have uh, jointly developed. The third thing is uh, non-competes, um, make it difficult for new firms to start up. So we've seen cases in Massachusetts where uh, a firm wanted to, uh, a Silicon Valley firm actually wanted to, for instance, wanted to open up uh, a Massachusetts office, but everybody they wanted to hire had been employed sometime in the last two years in the industry for a competitor, and so they could not hire anybody. uh, And they eventually gave up. you know, from, from the employee's point of view, these things are sometimes very unfair. So, you, you know, you, there, there are stories where um, somebody's been working, got a PhD in, in the technology, who's been working in the field, they, they take a job, um, things don't work out, they've got a clash with the, the boss, and they leave, and then for, for two years, their entire, you know, everything they've learned uh, over a long period of time is put on ice balls and they've got to, to, to take a detour. So economists have done some very good work showing that there are some uh, uh, detrimental effects on startups, on innovation, patenting rates, uh, and the, the, uh, with non-compete agreements. And, and because we're seeing some state-to-state variation, uh, they're able to, to, to measure this quite nicely. So th- there is good empirical support for this ex- explanation of the, the difference between Silicon Valley and Route 128. Well, so the claim yeah, is, is that Massachusetts is much more tolerant of non-competes than California. But my impression now is that California seems to have a growing issue no, no. with this. Yeah, yes. 
the uh, in California, non competes have, have not been enforced. In Massachusetts, they have been. So Massachusetts, there's some efforts, uh, in, including by the governor, to to change the law in Massachusetts. But this has worked in in, in favor of Silicon Valley as opposed to Route 128. So if you go back, this is Annalise Saxenian um, first made this argument a, a while back. Uh, if you know, if you go back to 1980, both areas seemed very comparable in terms of tech firms, and you know they they had tech firms with large universities and uh you know they look very similar but uh california was able to adapt to challenges much more effectively uh and and silicon valley grew much more rapidly where uh, the the uh, the firms around boston uh, did not now there's something of a resurgence in 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 new england uh particularly with biotech um but there seems to be some good evidence that uh, non-competes played a role in the poor performance of Massachusetts. So we're almost out of time. We we had an episode with Adam Davidson uh, a while back on manufacturing, and one of the lessons from that was that the manufacturing jobs that are left are actually quite high-skilled, which is why many of them do pay very well. They require some knowledge of advanced mathematics, and you know, that's one way you can imagine that the an ever-shrinking industry might still produce valuable employment for some people. Uh, similarly, there's going to be jo- there are going to be jobs for people who create the smart machines. And so one of the, I think, the temptations is to say, well, we just have to teach everybody how to code and teach some mathematics. And I think that's the wrong uh, lesson to learn because I don't think everybody can code well and mathematics is hard. So what are your thoughts for what our school system should be doing, either K through 12 or the universities or community colleges, to help people who are not going to be coders and mathematicians to be productive uh, going forward in a world with a lot more uh, technology in it? So uh, this gets back to the kinds of transitions we were talking about earlier. Uh, you, You know, you look at the bank tellers or the graphic designers, they don't need to be coders, some graphic designers or HTML coders, but I think for the most part, not. Um, it, on the other hand, they need to be comfortable with computers. They need to be able to think quantitatively. And I think this is the most important thing. They need to be able to learn new systems as the systems are continually changing. Uh, so if our schools can do a better job of that, and, and I'm not sure how to tell them how to do a better job, but I think that's the challenge for our schools is, is to figure out how to how to produce people who can be lifelong learners. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure we know how to do that. Um, but certainly the other part, which you allude to, I think, briefly in, in the book, is that there are some non-technical skills that are going to be valuable in this in a world of um, of computers and, and smart machines, and those are human skills, empathy, right. and so right. on. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if we know how to teach that either, but that's another route I think that will <laughs> still allow people to be compensated well. Right. Increasingly, the, the, the jobs are going to be jobs that involve human aspects, interpersonal skills, abilities to, to listen, to develop trust, those sorts of things. And at the same time, to be able to relate to computer systems. Um, th- that's the combination. You know, I mean, you can even think of the bank teller. The bank teller works with a computer, needs to understand the computer systems, 
um, not know how to code them necessarily, but needs to be able to work with them, and yet at the same time be able to to tell the small businessman who just walked in about the latest uh, loan offerings that the bank has uh, and might be useful. My guest today has been James Besson. His his book is Learning by Doing. Jim, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.